Today, uh, we are going to continue the series in James, chapter 1, uh, and I'm excited for that. Uh, we're going to talk about, um, kind of play off of what Curtis preached about last week, this, this idea of worthless and valuable religion. Now, I think we all have some concept of what is worthless. Have you ever been to a movie and you get out of the movie after you just paid a crazy high uh, amount of money, like $12 for a ticket, you got this little thing of popcorn for like $25 just because your wife wanted it. Uh, and you get out of there and you feel like somebody put a vacuum to your ear and sucked part of your brain out. It was so worthless. Has anybody ever seen a movie like that? A few of you just worthless. Or better, I think a lot of us can relate to, have you ever been at work and been required to go to a training? Mm, mm, mm. Corporate world, that's where I spent most of my time. And you go to this four-hour training and they promise, like, this is going to make you the best employee ever. And you get out of that thing and say, man, why was I even there? Like, I'm actually a worse employee because I spent four hours in this training. It was worthless. Anybody been in that situation, right? Now, some of you guys, um, your football team this year has been worthless. Uh, I, won't, I won't name names. Um, Texas, Longhorns, man, tough. A&M started with a bang and then ended with a flash downward. And then my heart goes out to my Baylor friends. Oh, man, it was a tough game, a lot of speed. Didn't turn out, but there's a lot of worthless. You would say, man, this season's been worthless. I can't wait till next year, unless you're the Houston Cougars, which I've been told, yeah, I haven't given them the due respect that I need to. They are now 10-0, and and so their, their season is very worthwhile. There's a difference between a worthless and a worthwhile season. And there's plenty of examples in my life where there have been things that are worthless, think back about eight years ago, uh, my father-in-law started doing some uh, trading on the stock market. Maybe you're good at that. And so I did a little research. I said, man, I'm an engineer. I can do anything, right? You engineers know what I'm talking about. I can do this. And so I began to research and study. And uh, I came upon this one stock, this energy company that I was like, man, this is my ticket to early retirement. I'm going to invest what was a decent amount to me. Now, remember, I was early married, a couple kids, didn't have a lot of money. So what I invested may not be a lot to you, but it was a lot to me. And so I, I took this stock. It was amazing. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a little bit in this. And, and I think this is just going to blow up in a good way. It's going to be my ticket out of here. And so today, uh, my stock is not worth $40 a share. It's not worth $4 a share. It's not even worth 40 cents a share. It's not even worth four cents. It is worth two fifths of a cent. Point zero, zero. Four cents per share. It's, it's worthless, literally worth. It is actually going to cost me more to have the transaction of selling it than the actual stock is worth. And unfortunately, it's not a big enough money where I can actually write it off my taxes. So it doesn't really give me. And so this is what I love about this, though. It's a reminder for me because I'm a man who is really tends to go to pride, unfortunately. It's my heart without Jesus. Every quarter, I get this thing in the mail that says, hey, by the way, Derry." Humble yourself. You made a really, really bad decision. Your stock is worthless. And I love it. And that's why part of the reason I don't just sell it because I know every quarter I'm going to get this statement that says, hey, your stock is worth point zero zero four. It is worthless. And I think a lot of you can understand there are worthless things and then there's valuable things in life. And today we're going to look at religion, the outworking of your faith that it can either be worthless in the sight of God or it can be great, valuable to God. And so let's look at two verses. We're going to look at verse 26 again and verse 27. So if you have a Bible, open up to James chapter 1, verse 26 and verse 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, 
but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so the, the truth that we see James painting this picture in these two verses is that there is something that before God is absolutely worthless. There are things that we do in the context of religion in the name of God that are completely worthless. But then on the other side, he says, there's actually things that we do as an outworking of our faith that are actually that are valuable to God. They're pure and undefiled to God. And we got to take a step back and say, well, what's the difference? And I think the, the line in the sand between a worthless religion and religion that is valuable to God is, is the motivation love. What's the motivation? 26, it says, if you think yourself religious, therefore I'm projecting this religion. My, my words are unbridled, therefore my words show the place of my heart. And he said, if that's the religion that you're doing, that is all outward, it's not really, you don't have the motivation that love is not what's driving you, then your religion is worthless. But then he says, man, if you go and you visit orphans and widows, there's something about that, that that strikes God's heart. And he says that kind of outward expression of your religion, that is valuable. And so we see here that the line in the sand between worthless and valuable is love. Paul talks about this in Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13. If you've been to a wedding Recently, you probably heard this, but Paul says, man, if you do all these things, so if you speak in tongues of angels and tongues of men and you do not love, it's nothing. If you give away all your possessions, it's nothing. If you can have prophetic powers, it's nothing. If you do not have love, if you can have enough faith where you tell this mountain to be removed and you do not have love, it is nothing. If you offer yourself up to be martyred and you do not love, it's nothing. So Paul and James, they could be on the same preaching circuit because they're saying the same thing. Without love, all your religious acts, even though they look good on the outside, it can be completely worthless. And we see here that James and Paul and, and even Jesus, most importantly, Jesus, he's less concerned about the what and more about the why. Because this is the thing that Jesus knows and James knows and Paul knows, that if we get the why right, then the right what will follow. If we get the why, what, what is the motivation of my heart? What, why do I want to do these things in the name of Jesus? If we get that part right, then the overflow of that is going to be pure and undefiled religion. So let's look at back James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one unstained from the world. We're really going to focus on this part about visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Because what I want us to see here is that, that Paul is, is kind of giving us a big picture here. He wants to describe something, and so he goes in some great detail, some very concrete example to explain something that is much bigger than this. Now, now just to be sure, the only uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before, it's not just orphan care and widow care. It's an example so let's not be, let's go down this road to say, man, I've got to do orphan and widow care. Now, I think we should be doing that. But, but what 
James is doing is he's pointing to a very specific example. And what I wanted to do today, I want to back out and say, why is he using this example? Why would James say, lift up orphan care and widow care for us to say, man, this is what it looks like to have a religion and outworking of my faith that is pleasing and valuable to God. And so today we ask, why? Why? And so I've got three questions for us today. Uh, I put together a pure religion litmus test. Um, You'll like this, maybe, maybe not. Now, when I say pure religion, remember, pure religion, the dividing line is love. Now, I know a lot of us struggle with this hypothetical, um, high-level understanding of love. Like, I know God loves me. Uh, I know that as a disciple of Jesus that people should know me by my love. I know that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Like, I know about love. But many of us, I think, struggle with this high-level understanding. So what does it actually look like in my life? What's the application? And thankfully, James, he's not a high-level 30,000-foot guy. He's like where the rubber meets the road. And that's what I like about him. And so we're going to say, man, what does pure and undefiled religion, religion that is really worthwhile to God, what does it look like? And so there's three things that I want to take from this one verse in verse 27. The first thing is what is required is humility. He says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So what he's actually saying is we are to go to them, not them come to us. Now We can miss that if we just read close, but it says that we actually go to them. We meet them where they are in their affliction. You don't see yourself as above, but you actually place yourself beside of them. This is selfless, and it shows great humility. Now, in this text, I think James is speaking specifically, physically going to the widow and the orphan in their reflection. So, but, but what I want to speak to you today is it's not always a physical going to to show humility. Now, now husbands, uh, here's a word for you. Uh, learn from, from my um, bad experience in this, that, that this applies to your marriage. Like when your wife is struggling with something that you just don't understand, your mind goes A to B, it's simple, go fix it, but your wife is like spaghetti all over the place and she doesn't want to hear your solution. This is what the text is saying. Meet her where she's at. Humble yourself. Try to put yourself in her shoes and recognize, man, I, I may not have the right answer. Humble yourself and say, God, baby, what's going on? What's going on in your life? I'm, I'm going to validate your concern. I'm going to validate the feelings you're having. I'm going to meet you where you are. This takes great humility as a husband. It takes great humility if you have a friend and you know how the situation should go. Don't we all know how somebody else's life should play out? But when we go to somebody in their affliction, we've got to put ourselves in their shoes. We've got to humble ourselves and say, man, I, I may not have all the answers. I want to try to view this situation from their lens. This is what it looks like to have humility. To have humility, it requires us to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto someone else. And I know we have a lot of Dallas transfers in here. God bless you. Um, but, but a lot of y'all, and including myself, we, we like to listen to Matt Chandler. Love, love Matt Chandler. He's a pastor up in Dallas. One of the things that he says that gets my attention every time is he's, he says that we've got to stop being navel gazers. Because we're so concerned about looking down and looking at my belly button and what's going on in my life, what, what is not going on in Tarek's life. 
who hurt me, who didn't talk about me, and I'm so busy looking down here that I don't get my eyes up and see what else is going on in the world. And when I do that, I'm prideful. When I do that, I have no humility. And when I do that, there's no way that my religion, my outworking, and my faith can be pure and undefiled because it's about me. There's no love if it's about you. And so we see this. Matt Chandler says this, and there's, there's a great quote that I love. It says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. Now, that's not a scripture But what you'll find if you read the text of scripture around humility and pride, that this embodies scripture. Because humility is not saying, man, I'm so bad, I'm so terrible. No, you're a son and daughter of the king. Don't put yourself down. Have a right view of who you are. But it's getting your eyes off of yourself and onto somebody else. And this is what James is speaking of, to go to somebody, these orphans and widows, in their affliction. It requires humility. Now, we've got to remember at this time, who James was writing to. He was writing to new Jewish believers. Remember the 12 tribes of the dispersion? Those that had believed in Jesus were following Jesus, but were scattered about. That's the primary writer, uh, people that James is writing to. And you've got to realize that in this day, they would have had this view and raised looking at the Pharisees. And we know that the Pharisees have a historical problem of not being humble people. And so James says, man, you guys have seen this played out in your own life. I don't want you to be like those that were supposed to be your example. You're going to choose another path. And so what we see in the Pharisees is they actually abuse their power to oppress the widows and the orphans. They would actually preach sermons directing them at those that were poor and didn't have much. And they would actually require them to do above and beyond what God has ever asked them to do. And Jesus actually says that they actually take away the widow's houses. They devour them. And we also see in in Matthew 23, I think is a great text here that we can kind of draw off of what it looks like not to love and not to have pure religion. So turn to Matthew chapter 23 today. Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. So we're speaking about humility is required, but what we're going to do is we're going to see how Jesus looks at pride to understand what humility is a little bit more. So Matthew, first book of the New Testament, about in the middle of your Bible, maybe a little to the right. Chapter 23, picking up in uh, verse 23, we're going to read a few verses here. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you. Now, now, can you just imagine the scene? I mean, sometimes we take this and don't really like think about what was happening. Can you imagine like the Pharisees like ducking and covering? Oh no, woe to me, like Jesus is coming again. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Curtis talked about that last week, right? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind God, straining out a gnat And swallowing a camel. It's an amazing picture. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of your cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. The last thing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs 
with outwardly appearance of beauty, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So also outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus, tell us what you really think. So, so this is the poster child for what it looks like to have a defiled and unpure religion. And, and we see that the reason is, if we go back to verse five here, verse five, Jesus is once again addressing them prior to saying all this. He says, they, the Pharisees, do all their deeds to be seen by others. Self, pride, defiled religion. And this is what the Pharisees were so good at. They would take these God-commanded things, these good, godly acts that God had told them to do. And he, they would take that and somehow they would twist it and make it and they would go do it, but they would do it in a way that they would get the glory. They, they would twist whatever God had told them to do, like tithing, like praying, giving alms. They would take those good God things, they would twist them and they would make it about themselves so that they would be the beneficiary of it. They would get the glory. And what James would say is that is defiled religion. That's worthless And we look at the Pharisees and we say, man, those guys, they were jacked up. How how could they be like that? But I think oftentimes we get a little closer to their heart than we get to the heart of Jesus. Let me give you a specific example in my own life. Um, When I really came to know the Lord and really said yes to him and got to know his spirit and started walking with him and saying yes, I, I began for the first time in my life to read the scriptures. Now, this is only like six years ago. And so uh, where I was never a reader of the word, which is a terrible excuse, guys, a really, really bad excuse, I, I began to devour hours of the word every morning. It was all brand new to me. I, I mean, I would open it up and I'd be like, wow, can you believe God said this in Luke? And my wife was like, yeah, we learned that in Sunday school and you did too, but, but it was brand new to me. And so I would consume the word of God. It's a very good thing. If you're not reading your word of God and you want to hear from God, man, you're just like asking for something that's not really, it's not aligning. If you want to hear from God today, which I know most of you do, maybe some of us in the room are a little scared to hear from God, which I totally understand. I've been in your shoes. But if you want to hear from God and you're not reading this word, I don't know what to tell you because it's not going to happen. It's going to be challenging, not to say he can't speak some other way. He's spoken some amazing ways, but apart from his word and us being in the word, it's hard to hear from him. And trust me, he speaks in amazing other ways too, all the different ways, and I've experienced it, but primarily he's speaking to us in his word. And so I would begin to devour the word of God and I began to feel pretty good about myself. And so remember, I'm not a pastor this time. That's only been a few months. And so I was not a pastor and I was sitting in our service in Ohio and I would get to the service and I had my Bible out. And so the pastor would say, hey, turn to X, Y, and Z or turn to this passage. And guess what Derek would do? I would make sure I was the first one to turn to that page. My, my competitiveness would come out and also my pride would come out. And so I would flip real quick, Acts chapter 11, here to go. And I, hear, and I would kind of sit there and be like, hey, does anybody else need help getting to the page of the Bible? Anybody? I mean, I found this and anybody else, right? And so then I would get to a page in my Bible. Uh, heaven forbid he wouldn't say like turn to the book of Nahum because then I'd be like, where, let, me, let me like find Nahum. Where is that? Zechariah, like where, uh, Right. And so I would kind of get haughty about this. And then I would turn to a a page like here in chapter 11. And and because, um, you know, just my style, when I'm reading the word, I like to get into it. And so I mark up my Bible, which is a really good thing. Like 
I really don't believe in a Bible that's just white. Like it needs to be lived in and worked in, like underlined, highlighted, like in the margins like that. So that's my style. And so I would get to a passage, maybe like this page that has a bunch of underlines. And, and I would kind of, if my wife was on this side, I would kind of cock myself to the side, the person beside me, just so they could see that, man, Derek's been in his Bible. I'm, I'm serious. This is how bad your pastor is at his heart. So I would kind of lean to the side and say, man, did you have that mark? Yeah, you know, yeah, right here. It's right here. It's really good. Yep. And so what I was doing is I was taking a really God goodly thing that he told us to go get in my word, have it tied around your neck, know the word, be in the word, live in the word. I was taking a good thing and I was taking that God thing and I was twisting it to be about Derek. I was making it about me. And what James would say is, is that religious activity that even is a good thing that God said go do, when it's about you, it's worthless. It's pride. There's no humility in it. And so what James does is he takes us to the other end and he says, listen, this is an example. If you go to the widow and the orphan in their affliction, not invite them into the temple, but go to them, you're actually going somewhere where it's gonna be really hard for you to grab any glory. Now, remember, this is before cell phones and selfies of holding babies and being with old people. Uh, they weren't uh, about having social media where they could say, man, I want more followers. I want to get some likes by my picture with the orphan and with the widow. This is James is speaking to a people that there was not part of their scene. If they went to the orphan and the widow, it was a humbling experience. There was no chance of self-glory in it. And so James says, this is what it looks like to have undefiled and pure religion that is valuable to God, that it has to require humility. There can, no, there can be no glory grabbing in it. And so the first question of the litmus test we finally get to is one that my mentor in Ohio often challenged me with when I was doing things and when I began to walk with the Lord. He would say, who is getting the glory? Who is getting the glory? And specifically to us in the church today, who is getting the glory for the things that you're doing in the name of Jesus? Because we can do a lot of good things and really make it as an outward projection that everything's right with the Lord, my heart's right. But if my heart is not rooted in love, my motivation is not love, then it's worthless. And so you've got to ask yourself today, the things that I am doing, even in the name of Jesus, who is getting the glory in those things? Because if it's you, then you've really got to ask, is there a self-driven motivation here? Because apart from humility, it's really hard to love. And apart from love, your religion is worthless today. And so then we get to the second part. And the, the second thing is sacrifice. Sacrifice is essential to pure and undefiled religion because sacrifice is essential to love. You cannot love without sacrificing. You can talk about love. You can say, I'm loving this person. But apart from a sacrifice of some kind, apart from you taking yourself off of the throne, off of the focus, apart from that, you cannot love anybody. And we see this throughout the Bible. John 15, 13 says this, greater love is no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friend. Sacrifice. Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see this throughout the scripture that every time love is mentioned, there is always a sacrifice 
of some kind that is linked to it. And so we've got to ask today, what is the sacrifice that when James was writing this, that these Pharisees and these uh, followers of Jesus would have had to have to go see, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And there's four things that I want to point us to. I think the first thing that they would have had to sacrifice was their status in their community. It was not the cool thing. It was not all the rage to work for a nonprofit at this time. So, so it would have been a challenge for these men who probably had some respect in the community, possibly. Now, remember, they were on the run, so it might have been a little different. But it would have been something for them to lower themselves to go to a part of the city that was not renowned, a part of the city that wasn't in their gated community, a part of the city where people weren't as well off, didn't have the same education, didn't have all the right lineage. It would have been humbling because they would have actually lowered themselves in the community. Their status, their stock, like my stock, would have dropped significantly. The second thing that we see sacrifice is time. And that's a hard one for us to swallow today. Many of us, because of our schedules, are so booked end-to-end, day-to-day, burning the candle on both ends. But to go to the orphan and the widow, they would have had to sacrifice their time of doing something else. They would actually have to travel to, be with, spend actually some time with them and sacrifice some time. They would have had to say no to some other things in order to go and love. The third thing I think they sacrificed was comfort. Comfort. Because the orphans and the widows, they weren't living in the nice parts of the neighborhood. <laughs> they were living in the rundown areas. It was probably a little dangerous, so they sacrificed some safety. They sacrificed some comfort to actually go to this people that were in great need. And then lastly, they would have had to sacrifice their resources in order to go that they wouldn't have had some capital campaign to try to raise a bunch of money. They would have actually taken their own money, likely, and gone and provided, whether that was food, clothes, whatever was needed, they would have actually taken out of their own money and sacrificed their own resources to serve these people that had been forgotten by society. And let me give you a present-day example. Um, I'm honored and blessed to be able to go to Kenya in December with a team from Bayou City Fellowship. It'll be my third time in this tiny little town about an hour northwest of Nairobi um, in Kenya. Um, This city, uh, one in eight of the people that live there are prostitutes. One in eight. That's 600, I believe, prostitutes in this little town. 40%, at least verified, have HIV AIDS. 40%. And the unemployment is way higher than that. And so what we see in in this city is that there is extreme poverty, extreme misidentity in who I am, that mothers are going and selling their bodies, or even worse, they're taking their children, their young daughters, to put food on the plate. They are selling their own children into prostitution. And thankfully, we have a church that says, no, we want to be part of bringing some light into that area. And so we have really helped fund a place called Lulu's Place that is a safe house for teenage girls that are caught already in prostitution. And we're helping come alongside them and bring them out and providing healing and counseling and safety for some girls. And so we're going to help them, but we're also going to help some street boys that live in the church And uh, that's near and dear to my heart because that's where I'll be spending most of my time. And these boys from an early age are actually recruited to go be the runners for the people that are paying for the prostitutes. 
they, they stay out at night and they go. And when the truck driver pulls in and he wants something specific, the boy goes to the truck driver and says, what do you want? And then he goes from that truck driver, runs to a prostitute, tells her, hey, there's a man that's willing to pay you for this. And he brings her back. They are runners. I mean, early, early age, five, six, seven, eight years old. And so in this city, there's, there's these two people that we have partnered with, Pastor Isaac and his wife, Esther. And uh, they are godly people. Uh, but what's interesting about the society in Kenya is, is that people are looked down upon for going and being with the lesser of society. So Isaac's mission, Esther's mission in life is to go and be light and to love on these people that are forgotten about. But even in the Christian community there, they are looked down upon. Why would you waste your ministry? Why would you waste your time with these people that are below you? Why would you do that? The same that would have been true for James when he was writing this. Esther and Isaac, they have to daily, they have to sacrifice their status to be where they're at in this city. They have to sacrifice what it looks like to have time because who knows when prostitution happens at night, guess what? Somebody needs to potentially be around and available. They sacrifice their comfort. They live and work and their church is literally on the street about a block or two blocks from the main road that's also called the HIV highway where all of this is going down. They're, they're in the middle of it. They've sacrificed comfort and safety and they've obviously sacrificed their resources to provide care for these forgotten people. So my question for you today, the second question of the litmus test, are you sacrificing for anyone in your life? Now, I want you to think about uh, outside of your immediate family, because sometimes we go there, and, and you definitely should be sacrificing. Men should be sacrificing consistently for your wives' wives, sacrificing for your husbands, the kids. You should be sacrificing for them, and they should also be sacrificing to you. That's a good word for somebody in here. Your kids should also be sacrificing a little bit for the good of the family. But think a little bit above and beyond your immediate family. Are you sacrificing for anyone in your life? Because if you're not sacrificing for anyone in your life, you're likely not really loving anybody in your life. And if you are not loving anybody in your life, your religion is worthless. And so it's a question we've got to ask. Is there a consistent pattern of sacrifice in my life? And for many of you, that is for sure. And I see some of you right now, that's a consistent pattern in your life where you are sacrificing and let me tell you, your religion, it is valuable, and God loves it. The third thing and the final thing that we see in this passage is that it says to go visit, to be with, this, this concept of being present. The third thing that we see is presence, to go to be with, to be present. Listen, your presence often speaks louder than all of the words that you speak, because when I am present, I am it is an act of significance where I am telling somebody, you are equal with me. When I associate with someone, I actually validate them as valuable. And when I do so, I speak truth of God over them. Now, can you imagine during this time where these widows and orphans, they would have been the outcasts, they would have been on the outskirts of town, nobody cared. But when somebody of some kind of status went to them and became and was present with them in their affliction, not in the temple, but actually went to them, present, visiting them, what that would have done for that group of people they were visiting. It would have brought great hope, great comfort, comfort great value, and, and most especially identity. 
Never underestimate the power of your presence in someone's life. Presence speaks value. And people, all people, need to know they are valued. So if we're going to have a religion that is pure and valuable to God, we've got to make sure that we are present with people. That we're not just passing the buck, we're not using people, we're not abusing people. We're present with people. We need to breathe life over people by being with them and doing so, saying, you are valuable. I don't care what the world says to you. God has designed you. He has made you. You are made in his image. With my presence, I'm declaring you are worth it. And we all need to be doing that. And so the final question of our litmus test is, do you have margins in your life for others? Do you have margins in your life for others, And I know what the typical excuse is and one that I use still and I'm still working through is you would say, Derek, I have no time to have margin in my life for others. I am barely making it on my own. And I understand that. We have three kids working, doing some things on the side, a wife. I get busy. But here's my challenge to you is if you would look at you, if you were saying that my, my schedule was too busy to have margins, I would challenge you to say, what is driving your schedule? Is there any chance that your schedule is driven by your pride? Pride to be involved, pride to be seen, pride of not being left out, pride of being in the know, pride of looking like you have everything together. So how dare I say no to that community thing? How dare I say no to this thing that my neighbors are doing? How dare I say no because I don't wanna look like a bad person? That's a really bad way to set your schedule. And that may not be the case for all of you, but for me, oftentimes I say yes to things not because I feel like that's what I'm called to do by God. It's because I want to look like I've got it all together. I want to look like Derek has the time. Derek is the person that's always there. And so my schedule can get really out of hand. And when I do that, I have zero or very little margin for anybody else. When I don't have margin for anybody else, I miss out on the opportunities for my religion, my faith to be lived out in a pure and undefiled way that James is speaking of here. And so we have these three things, humility, sacrifice, and presence. We've got to ask these questions, and if we say, man, we're struggling with these, we've got to say, man, is my religion really worthless, or is it valuable? And luckily for us, we have a picture of what this looks like in Jesus. If you want to know what pure and undefiled religion looks like, look at the life of Jesus. He is the poster child for pure and undefiled religion, and we see these three things here. We see humility. Jesus, this is in Philippians 13, he stepped out of his position in heaven with the Father. He stepped out of that and humbled himself and became one of you and me. Fully man and fully God, he stepped into this world, wrapped himself in flesh, and was born of a virgin Mary. Humbled himself. And when he lived on this earth, he didn't live a life of pur- pop, pomp, pomp and circumstance. He lived a humble life where he related to the sinners that he was with the prostitutes, that he was with the tax collectors, he was with all those that were kicked to the side of society. He says, come, come, I came for you. Humility, that's how Jesus rolled. And then we know that through sacrifice, that he sacrificed his position in heaven to step into humanity. 
that he sacrificed his status by associating with all these people that society said they're not worthless or they're defiled. Don't touch that person because they're ill or the woman with the issue of blood. Don't get around her because she's ill. Jesus says, nope, I'll touch you. I'll heal you. He sacrificed his own status in the community. He sacrificed his own will in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, God, not my will, but yours be done. He sacrificed. And then ultimately, for every single person in this room, Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice of dying on the cross. Not for your sins yesterday, not for just your sins today or just tomorrow, for all sin of all time. Jesus has paid the price by dying on the Christ, the cross, the greatest sacrifice that we could ever see played out. Jesus loved through sacrifice. And then finally, we see Jesus fulfill this undefiled and pure religion by being present. See, it was God's plan all along. In the temple, he gave the Israelites his presence. But that wasn't really his intention. He wanted to go further, but at the time, that's all they could have. That's all they could withstand. So he was there with them, amongst them. But then he sent Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He actually was with us. He was present. He was with humanity. But thankfully for us, when he said, listen, it's better that I leave, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone ever again. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to not only be with you, but to now the fulfillment of the scriptures. I'm going to live in you. In his last act of love, he said, listen, I will not leave you. I am with you. My spirit now is going to be given. And at Pentecost, it was given. And he is now with us and he is in us. See, this is the greatest love story that was ever lived out is this life of Jesus. Pure and undefiled religion. And so our response is the question today. Do I white knuckle my ability to have this look-alike religion? The religion where I am doing a lot of good things Am I able to white knuckle that? And I would say, based on my experience, there's no way you can force that to happen. Pure and undefiled religion only comes from a heart that's being transformed. And a heart can only be transformed if I have received the love of God first and foremost. And as I receive the love of God, I then begin to love myself and recognize who I was created to be. And as I love myself, then and only then can I love my neighbor as myself. And so today, the answer as we walk out of here is not to go do more, not to try harder, not to force myself to have a tongue that's broader because James would say it's impossible because what is in your heart, it's going to come out. So the answer today is to receive love. If you're struggling with being selfish in your activity, you're not alone. If you're struggling with being inactive and you're not doing anything, you're not alone. Today, I would ask you, have you received the love of God? So no matter if you've been walking with the Lord for 30 years or three minutes, there is always more love to be known. And so today, as we have this prayer time and you're saying, man, my religion, it it looks way more like worthless than worthwhile to God. If that's you today, I want to invite you to come forward and pray when the prayer team gets up here and we're worshiping. And, and I just want you to ask, I want a revelation of God's love today. 
because this is the promise of the scriptures that he says the Holy Spirit pours out the love of the Father on those that ask. And so we're just gonna stand on the scriptures and we're gonna say, God, shower me with your love today. Give me a revelation of your love for me. Not this 30,000 foot view, but your love specifically for me. And then today, if you have never experienced the love of Christ, there is nothing else like it. Today, if, if you say, man, I don't even know Jesus, I don't have a relationship with him, I, I'm not in the family of God, then there's great news for you today that, that what it, Jesus came to do is to die on the cross, to take away your sins, to forgive you, to invite you into a relationship with him today. And as you come into that relationship with God, what he does is he pours out his love. He speaks his identity over you, and he makes you his son and daughter. Lord, thank you so much for this word from James that you've called us to love, but we can only love when we've received your love. So Lord, let us be a Bayou City, a people that are motivated by the heart of God, which is to love you and to love others. Holy Spirit, draw people to you today. Let nobody leave here that is feeling like an isolated, that's feeling like an outcast, that's feeling like... uh, their religion is worthless. Draw them to you today, Lord. Put power on our prayers in the name of Jesus.